The Gospels give us only one inspired snapshot of the boyhood of Jesus, and the crucial age of twelve was the time chosen for the exclusive portrayal. Our teacher, Dave Wurtson, and his wife, Mary, have faced this critical time with their children, Jonathan, Joel, Josh, and Janae. Dave speaks to us today not only as a careful Bible student, but also as a parent who walks with us in the crisis and struggled with raising godly kids. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, as Dave exposes the goals of the 12-year-old Jesus. I think it's very interesting that God the Father, in the economy of His Word, chose to give us just one snapshot, just one snapshot into the life of the boyhood of Christ. We've been studying the life of Christ, that's our focus, and we've done the birth narratives, and we've noticed that there's many things related to His birth, We've gone through the announcement of the angels to the shepherds. We've had the wise men visit, the dedication of Jesus at the temple, the recognition by Simeon. And we've had the flight down in Egypt. All these accounts have revolved around those early months in his babyhood. There's only one small vignette, one small snapshot of Jesus in his boyhood. And I think it's fascinating that God the Father chose to show him to us when he was 12. And I want to try to point out some things that the Holy Spirit has taught me about the boyhood of Christ that can be challenging in my own family, hopefully in your families, and to our young people. Let's turn to Luke chapter 2. And let's look at in his father's house, the boy in his father's house. Luke chapter 2. Luke 2.41. Every year, every year his parents went to Jerusalem to the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. The very first thing I want you to underscore in your thinking as a family is that Jesus was raised in a family which had consistent godly parents. They were consistent in their home. And they had traditions that they maintained year after year. This is a point that Dr. Luke and Matthew have made again and again as we've looked at the accounts of Jesus' childhood. Matthew and Luke underscore that Jesus was born into a godly Jewish Old Testament family. Their religion wasn't ritual, it was relationship. Their religion wasn't cold, uh, legal, going to church. It was the reality of worshiping our dear Heavenly Father. And Jesus was brought up in that kind of a family. And what Luke is telling us is that this wasn't just something when he was 12 years old. Oh yeah, we'll take you to the Passover. The, the wording there stresses that Jesus had been a part of this with his family for many years. And it's, it's a long walk from Nazareth down in Jerusalem. And three times a year, according to the book of Deuteronomy, God called for the males of Israel to come to Jerusalem and worship in the central sanctuary. Passover was a major time. Then the Feast of Pentecost was the next major time. Then the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall where they would set up their booths and reenact the wilderness wanderings. That was the third time. Passover was the major one. The major feast that even Jews in the diaspora, the scattering, sought to come back. And Luke underscores that Jesus' parents yearly 
took the time to go for seven days and worship the Lord in Jerusalem. I want to ask you, and I want to ask myself, what godly traditions are my kids going to remember? What godly traditions are your children going to remember? Do they remember that dad, sometime during the day, maybe in the evening, just before the kids went to bed, goes into their room, and before the kids fall asleep, he says, hey, let's spend some time and pray. And they have a dad that prays with them at the end of every day. Do you have some traditions where your little ones remember dad and mom opening up like a storybook, a Bible storybook, like Edersheim's or the Family Bible Library by Gilbert Beers or some other very effective, like Ken Taylor's The Bible for Little Eyes? Do they remember those traditions that that was something mom and dad did? Or do you just herd them off to sleep and say, hey, kid, it's time to go to bed, and they go in, and they're all alone? See, those are traditions, godly traditions, that when you get big, you remember. You might rebel against them for a small period of time during adolescence, but when you come to, uh, to fruition in life and maturity, you tend to remember. And I want to share with every one of your dads, it's not going to be that consistent walk with God that will turn your kids off. I promise you that it will not. I promise you that in my own life, I went to church more than you could ever take your kids to church. I was raised in an evangelist home. He, my dad loaded me in the car on Saturday. We split for who knows where. And we were at meetings Saturday night, three meetings on Sunday. My dad, I remember sleeping in the back window of cars coming back. I was raised doing that. I went to a Christian high school where we had chapel every single day in the morning and at night. It did not turn me off. What turns me off is when parents feel that we as a church can do what you're not doing in your home. Because that will turn your kids off. Your kids will reflect dominantly, generally, what are your values. It's not consistent godly worship in a home life that generates itself in this extended family. That's not what turns kids off. It's when we're not allowing God in our daily life to draw us near to him. As I share like that, you know, I think it's real easy to put you on a guilt trip. And to be honest with you, it's easy to put myself on the guilt trip. Because I get paid for studying the scripture, and I want to share with you that we wrestle with the evil one in our home. It's hard for me, like this morning, Mary is gone. It takes discipline for me to say, hey, we're going to sit down for a minute and read a little bit of God's word together and read the daily bread. But you know, as I did that once again, the spirit, Sunday's a hard morning for me because Satan's working and I got a lot of responsibility. But it was like the Holy Spirit blew over that situation. My dad passed those traditions on to me. They did not turn me off. They turned me on to what is genuinely valid, to what really counts in life. Jesus was raised in a family like that. And I want you to know that as a pastor teacher that I want to enter into your struggle. I think the hardest thing for us to do 
It's to bring one another near, to keep coming back. We go through times of doubts. We go through times of hurt. We go through times of being very depressed. We go through times of being physically very tired. It's such a struggle to maintain these consistent attitudes and practices of godliness. And I want to be of help to you. I don't want us to be a place where there's guilt and judgment. I want there to be a place where we wrestle together and we pray together and we grow in our consistent godly disciplines. Jesus was raised in that kind of a family. Praise God. And so when it was time to go to the Feast of Passover, he was there. The second thing I want you to notice from this passage is the boy and the doctors of theology. As we look into this next snapshot, it's a very moving scene. I think some of the, the teenagers will get a charge out of it because you might have felt like, hey, mom and dad, I'd like to just stay on a little bit. I've enjoyed being in Jerusalem. It's been neat being with some friends. And you go ahead back to Nazareth. I think I'm going to stay on. Uh, look what happens in verse 43. After the feast was over, that was about seven days, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Now, don't be too hard on them, because I've left my kids at playgrounds and at the schools, and so you've got to be careful on these things. Don't be too judgmental. That makes me a lot easier on Mary and Joseph. Another thing, a 12-year-old, the, the men and the older boys would travel a little bit behind the girls, according to Jewish custom. I don't know why. I guess the girls cleaned out all the robbers and the, you know, the bandits that might attack. I don't know why they did that. But the men and the, bo and the older boys traveled a little bit behind the girls. And they sent the, the women and the young girls and the young children on ahead of them. And I'm sure that probably what happened is that Mary thought Joseph had him. And Joseph thought Mary had him because the 12-year-old was right in the middle. They weren't one of the older boys, but they weren't one of the little children. So either parent could have guessed wrong, and they did. And what they did is they traveled about 28 miles, probably down to Jericho, because that's where the, there's an oasis. That would be the normal way to go back to Nazareth. And they traveled those one, that one-day journey down to Jericho, and that night is when they discovered what happened. Because they, they, Mary and Joseph finally were together again. They looked around, no Jesus. So they checked with all their relatives, which is what the text tells us. They're searching frantically. And they search all that night, can't find him. Then they're going to take another day to get back to Jerusalem. And then on the third day is when they find Jesus. So that's what's going on in this text, okay? So Jesus is a 12-year-old, gets preoccupied with what he was doing, and stays behind in Jerusalem. His parents split. It's kind of like my dad one day, uh, my, my little brother Ron was a lot younger than Jesus. We left him in a Howard Johnson's. And uh, we drove for three hours upstate New York, got way up in the mountains, and my dad said, hey, Dave, wake Ron up. And I went back over the station wagon seats, and I said, Dad, there's no Ron here. <laughs> and I will never forget how my dad hit the fan. My, nothing excites my dad, but he was excited and worried. I mean, all the way back, we were praying. We had visions of Ron walking out on, on the New York Thruway, and this was New York State, you know what the news reports are like in New York. We had visions of Ron plastered over the highway somewhere. We arrived back at Howard Johnson's, and he's got 20 waitresses around him, a gallon of ice cream. We walk in, he says, what are you all doing, you know? And he had just casually walked out, saw we weren't there, casually walked back in, 
told the waitress my parents just split without me. And he just sat there. The state police were looking for us, but he was well taken care of. So I have a little bit of a feel of what it's like for a parent to be in this kind of a situation. It says, then they began looking for him, in verse 44, among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And that will just bring together the scriptural idea that I was just trying to picture for you in a modern context. When they did not find him, they went back. And after three days, they found him. Now look at this snapshot. When they found him, he was in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, sitting among the doctors of theology is the idea, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. I want you to notice that we have teachers with time for young people. If you go to Israel today, you can still see this scene. You go to the Wailing Wall, I've mentioned it to some of you in the past, but when you see the picture of the Wailing Wall and you see the Jews praying at that wall, if you'll go a little bit to the left, you'll see some arches, and a lot of you have seen pictures of this, and underneath those arches are rabbinical schools. And if you'll go there almost any day of the week, you can see rabbis sitting together with students all around them debating the Torah. And it's their theological training. It's their academics. Jesus was doing that in the first century. What he did is these doctors would sit in a circle, the students would gather around, and they would ask questions, and the doctors would respond. Then they would ask another question, and the doctors would respond, and they would interact together. It's a great way to teach. And what I want you to see is I want every adult to see it. I want to remind myself of it. These doctors, many times in the Gospels, are going to be put down. The scribes and the Pharisees are going to be the enemies of our Lord. But here is one time where they were right on target. When Jesus was a boy of 12, the doctors of theology in Jerusalem had time for him. And how I praise God for a church who has time for their young people. And I want to stress it again and again and again. You've had time to sit in a gym so that your kids could play basketball. Most of you at oh, a little bit over 40 don't want to play basketball much anymore. But you've had time for the young people. I say to myself as a pastor, I need to have time for our kids. You know, many pastors that I'm with, when I go to camp at Word of Life, when I go to Maranatha, many pastors that I'm with, they'll come up to me and they'll say, hey, you know, why do you play basketball with these kids? Or you're down water skiing. You know, a lot of you have teased me a lot. Men alive works, and every time you go away, you know, you get injured. You shouldn't barefoot ski anymore or anything like that. But, you know, it's those kind of things. You know what it's like to ski in an afternoon when you have five kids in the boat? When you get up that night to teach them, and you've spent two or three hours with them on a basketball court, in a speedboat, in a swimming pool, playing recreational games and other kind of contexts. When you get up to speak that night, it's different than if you get up there with a coat and tie and a pinstripe suit on. Totally different. And suddenly the reality of Jesus becomes alive. And how I pray that the Lord will help us to follow the example of these Jewish teachers who had time for a 12-year-old boy.
And I want all of you to remember, it's written, you know what, if you don't have a 12-year-old in your house, you misjudge the 12-year-old. And now I thank God, you know, for a large family because I get intimate experience with just about all the age groups as they come along. But don't ever underestimate the power of the question of a child. How many of you as parents have been asked by a child a question theologically that you couldn't answer? Joshua and Janae are into the power of Jesus. There's discussions about Jesus being everywhere and Jesus being able to handle things. Don't underestimate the power of those questions. Jonathan and Joel have asked me questions that I was never asked in seminary that I still don't have the answer to. Don't ever underestimate the power of a child. And also, adult, don't ever think that the young people aren't interested in spiritual things. Now, if you crank your podium out and your Bible out and stick it up and line them up in orderly chairs, they probably won't listen because probably they were planning on going to Pizza Inn after the ball game and you just chose the wrong time. But don't conclude by that that they don't want to listen. They're not ready for a lecture, but they're ready for a genuine mom and dad and a genuine pastor and genuine youth leaders and genuine adults that love Christ with all their heart and will rub shoulders with them and will share the reality of that relationship. They have questions. A lot of our kids are asking, why should we believe in Jesus? Why not believe in someone else? That's a great question. Why not believe in someone else? There's answers to that. We need to give it to them. Mom and dad, why all the inconsistencies? We have all this shouting about don't drink and just say no and everything else. What I want to know, mom and dad, is why a lot of the adults that do all that preach and do it themselves. Why the inconsistency, huh? We shouldn't run away from those questions. They're good questions. Or when a teenager goes through a terrible time of, of, of doubt and fear. Sometimes they feel like life is just worthless. Maybe they didn't make the first string team. And they go through about three hours of crying. They're not going to reject you if you're there. They'll reject us if we're too busy. And Satan has us going helter-skelter through our home life and our work life that nobody is taking time. We do a lot of things. But you know, spending and doing a lot of time and doing a lot of things is not having that sensitivity to what's going on inside. And I think we all need to join together and pray that we'll be like the doctors of Israel, that we'll hear the 12-year-old's question, that we won't disdain it, that we'll enter into the legitimacy of that boy's question. I also want to say this. I think one of the biggest misjudgments that our culture is making is we've created an in-between time. And I've shared this idea before, but it comes up again in this text. For a Jewish boy, when he was 12, he was getting ready to become a man. When he was 12, he wasn't looking forward to about another eight years of irresponsibility, not knowing where he fit in, a time to play, a time to drive fast cars, a time not to have any responsibility. When a Jewish boy was 12, his dad started to deal with him as a young man. 
And when he was 13, when he was bar mitzvahed, he became a son of the covenant and he could go down and worship with all the men. And he would be treated as a man. Now our culture with a modern technological revolution has some serious problems because it takes about 15 years longer to get ready to provide a living in our culture. But as parents, we need to, we need to capture this principle that our kids need to grow up and have responsibility and they need to be treated like that. Now there's a real balance there. Some parents let go completely and act like their 13-year-old is 36 and some parents grab tighter and act like their 12-year-old is about three. What we have to do is to get a balance. A wise coach that starts to treat a 12-year-old with respect, with sensitivity, and encouraging them to become a man. One of the greatest gifts that my dad ever gave to me is when I got to be about 13, he started giving me responsibilities. He let me counsel children when I was 13. And I had 15 little boys and girls to take care of 10 weeks during the summertime. When I was 16, my dad let me direct an entire program. When I was 19, he let me direct the entire camp. He put an older man, about 50, that directed the whole New York State Police Force, who was the deputy inspector of the New York Police Force. They had him there for disciplinary purposes and financial purposes. They let me run everything else. And oh, I praise God for that. Because very early in my teenage years, my dad started looking at me eye to eye and he started treating me like a man. And as I was ready for it, he gave me more responsibility. And that kept me out of a lot of trouble. Because I didn't have time to get in trouble. I was too busy trying to reach people for Christ. You don't have to go through an in-between time. Rebellion in your teenage years is like rebellion when you're 40. The midlife crisis and some of the rebellion that comes like that is the same thing as happens in high school. And there's going to be some transitions. A teenager's got to grow up. They've got to get away from mom and dad. We need to allow that to happen. Relationships need to change. But rebellion is never in. I want you to see that Jesus as a 12-year-old was not devoted to play exclusively. There's going to be great times. I'm sure Jesus had a great time. But Jesus, as a 12-year-old, was devoted to worship. When his mom and dad came back in, his mom hit the fan. I think it's interesting that mom spoke. I would expect mom to speak. Mary would speak, I know. And Mary let Jesus have it. You know, she says, man, you know, you clobbered us. We've been worried about you. We didn't have any idea where you were. And Jesus, as a boy of 12, looked at her and said, you didn't know where I was. You should have known where I was. There shouldn't have been any debate where I was. And he said this. Didn't you not know that I must be in my father's house or about my father's business? I think the, the Greek doesn't have in my house or about the business. I think in my father's house is probably the more accurate phrase. And we have a little glimpse into one of the most profound realities. It says that the mom and dad didn't understand what Jesus said. I can empathize with that because none of us have really understood what he said even after that. 
After 2,000 years, theologians are still wrestling with what it meant that Jesus said, did you not know that I must be in not our father's house, not their father's house, but my father's house? Because that boy of 12 was not just like all of our kids. He was the unique boy, the boy that dwelled in heaven for eternity. And as a boy of 12, it was very much in his consciousness who his true father was. And that's why we worship him. And that's why as his life will develop for us, he will take the title the Son of God in a way that no one else can be called the Son of God.